When I'm in people's homes, I'm always interested to see what you're reading, what's on your bookshelf or in a bookcase, or what are the books that are sitting beside the chair that you're sitting on. And very often, those books are biographies or autobiographies. Now, as I look around here in church today, I don't think that there is anybody here who is famous enough to be approached by a publishing company, offered a contract to write your autobiography. Maybe there is, and you should let me know afterwards. I wouldn't mind reading it. But if you were writing an autobiography, what would you include? And maybe more importantly, what would you leave out? What would not make the final draft and the published version? Over the last months, we have been thinking together about the life of David. And we haven't been doing that chapter by chapter. We haven't started in 1 Samuel and worked our way chronologically through all of the events of that book into the book of 2 Samuel. Instead, we have chosen to look at David's life in what could be described as a thematic way. We have looked at key aspects of his life, relationships, and we've tried to learn from what we hear of David. And there's a danger in that. The danger is that I, as a preacher, could pick and choose the bits of David's life, the aspects of his life that we would think about together here on a Sunday afternoon in Connor, that I could bring to you the story, but that it would not in fact be the whole story. Well, today we get to see that God's Word gives us the whole story of David's life, even the parts that we might choose to either ignore or quickly gloss over. And each time we come to think about David's life, it's important to understand that his relationship with God was the very central aspect of his life. We have discovered that David was a man who, as Scripture tells us, had a heart for God. He shared the Lord's outlook in so many ways. But today, as we come to look at this particular part of David's family life, we're going to be reminded that this man was not perfect, far from it, and that there was so much that was wrong within his family. And that's why all the way through this series, and especially today, it's so important that we keep an eye on what lies ahead, that rather than dwelling on David, this particular king, that our gaze is always on that much greater king. In fact, that perfect king who would come from the line of David, Jesus the one who God would send to rescue imperfect and sinful people like you and me. So once again today, we'll be thinking much about King Jesus as we think about this passage. So with that in mind, turn with me again, please, to 2 Samuel 13, where today we meet for the first time 
with David the father. And there are a number of important things that I want to say in the way of background today as we think about David and his family. Our starting point should be the things that we have discovered about David in recent weeks. And you'll remember that sequence as we have been looking together at David's life. We have been reminded that David was a sinner at one point in his life in a spectacular way when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed. But then when he was confronted with his sin by God's prophet Nathan, David was repentant. He turned away from his sin. He was truly sorry to God for what he had done. And later on, he was able to share his experience of receiving God's forgiveness. He talks in Psalm 32 about the difference that forgiveness has brought to his life. So once again today, we need to begin by considering just how dangerous sin is. Because what David's life teaches us is that while there is absolutely full forgiveness for those who truly repent of their sin, those who truly turn away from sin and who come to God in Jesus, what we see in David's life is that there can be consequences that arise from our sin that can be lifelong. So that here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we begin to see the horrible consequences of David's sinful behavior and the wrong choices that he made at various points in his life. So that if I give you a really brief overview of the events of chapter 13, you quickly get to see the full horror of this story. We read of a son of David, Amnon, desiring his half-sister. And yes, that's right, you heard it right, his half-sister, Tamar. They had different mothers, but they shared a father, David. And of course, this kind of relationship was strictly forbidden, is strictly forbidden in Mosaic law in what we read in the Scriptures. And then we read of this plot where Amnon's cousin Jonadab, who was also part of David's family and nephew, tries to, to persuade him to put this plan into action. Where Tamar is lured into his quarters and eventually into his bedroom. And what follows is horrible. When Amnon tries to persuade his half-sister to come to bed with him. And she knows that this is very wrong. You see that in verse 12. And we'll come back to that verse in a few moments. But Amnon rapes his half-sister, a truly despicable act. And then he immediately despises her. His cruelty in raping her is matched by his cruelty in rejecting her, so that he says to a servant in verse 17, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. 
And then Absalom becomes involved in this story. He is a full brother of this woman, Tamar, this young woman. And he begins to bide his time in order to take his revenge. And a whole two years later, he acts. You read about his plan in verses 28 and 29. And his servants, his men, don't miss. And they take Amnon out. And when David gets the first reports back and all of the confusion, he's told, all of your sons have been killed, but Jonadab puts him right. And here's the explanation. Look at verse 32. My Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. And then he makes it clear, this has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day that Amnon raped his sister Tamar. And then right at the end of what we read, Absalom flees. And then the years that follow, he became a big thorn in the flesh of his father David as he looked to seize his throne. Now, as I've taken you through these events, what do you make of them? Because this is a very ugly story of lust, rape, and misogyny, of hatred, revenge, and murder. And you may be left asking, why are we reading this today? Why are we spending time thinking about this? Indeed, why is this chapter here in the Bible that we always hear is God's Word? Well, let's consider that. And the first thing to say as we consider that is that God's Word is truth, and it is concerned about telling the truth. That is the amazing thing about the Bible, that if you were editing this story, if you were presenting the story of this man, David, who is described as being the man with a heart for God, you might think, well, that doesn't really fit in with the description, so we'll just rip that few pages up and put it to one side. And we have discovered this time and time again. When we look together at that part of Genesis, where we're told the story of Jacob and Joseph and their dysfunctional family on Sunday evenings last year, as we worked our way through the book of Judges, God's Word as truth always tells the truth, even when the truth is ugly. And in doing so, it ultimately points us to our great need of God's rescue, the rescue that we find in Jesus. And as we think about this, let's deal with what is a very weak but actually commonly held attitude to Scripture. It's one that I hear from people at times. It's one that I especially hear in the media now when I'm driving around listening to the radio and people talk about the Bible. And they say something like, did you know that the Bible contains dot, dot, dot? In this case, did you know that the Bible contains incest and rape? Said in such a way as if the very mention of these things in the Bible is somehow an indication that God 
endorses or supports or overlooks such things. But of course, that's not the case. We always need to read verses that people can quickly pluck out of the Bible in the context of that book, in the context of the whole book, the, all that Scripture says. So, what do we make of this? Well, very quickly, first of all, we are struck by the wickedness of Amnon's actions. But we say that, and yet here's a bit of a philosophical question. How do we know that what Amnon did here was wrong? And you might say, well, just instinctively you know. You just have a feeling, well, that's not right. But seriously, what is the measure to conclude that an action like this is not right? Well, in this passage, we get God's verdict on Amnon's actions. We get it indirectly within the passage. It comes in the form of Tamar's response in verse 12. Please look at this verse because it's so important where she, she remonstrates, no, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. And there are a couple of things that strike me about her response. It clearly indicates Tamar's knowledge of God's Word, of God's law, so that she specifies Israel. She's not saying such a thing shouldn't be done in the world. She's saying this should not happen in Israel. Because the reality is that in other parts of the world at this time, among godless pagan nations, these things did happen. But Israel was called to be different. They were called to be holy. They were called to showcase the goodness of God. And then she specifically says, don't do this, how does she describe it? Wicked thing. She doesn't say unacceptable or inappropriate thing. No, wicked. And in fact, the Hebrew word that is used in this verse is the word for godless. And I believe this is so important for us to see in a world where what is acceptable and unacceptable changes from generation to generation. We know that. I know that some of you who are, well, let's just say older than me, when I'm in your homes, you're saying, oh, can I say this? Can I say that? My, gran my grandson tells me I can't say that. My granddaughter says I shouldn't speak of people in that way. And our ideas and our views change, our culture changes. And in all of that, there is a measurable and unchanging way of determining what is right and wrong, and that is God's law. What He views as acceptable and unacceptable, what God determines is right or wicked. So, for example, we live in an age when, and quite rightly, people are acutely aware of how men, especially men in positions of influence and power, treat women. 
and the Me Too movement has shone a light on that. It's forced society to confront these issues and the ugly truth of what men have been like. And that is good. And yet the reason why that's been necessary is because 40, 50 years ago, society viewed these things very differently. I watched a bit of a a documentary during the week about Bill Cosby. And you see her 40 years ago within the world of entertainment, Bill Cosby and Jimmy Savile and all the rest got away with it all. Because it was exactly what the culture was like. But we say today that abuse, mistreatment, exploitation of women has always been unacceptable to God. It has always been viewed by Him as wicked. And so today, those men present here in church, those who are men of God, people of God in Christ, are called to live by an ethic that is unchanging. Having our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit, therefore displaying the fruit of the Spirit in how we treat women. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We get to see the wickedness of Amnon's actions, but then very quickly, we also see the weakness of David's response. And King David actually doesn't feature that much in this chapter. And I would suggest that's the problem. That's the big problem. Where is he? The link verse between the two parts of this chapter in verse 21 is where we get David's verdict on what has happened. Verse 21, when David heard all this, what had happened, he was furious. Good. Proper order. That's right. He was furious, but then he completely failed to do anything about it. So that in verses 23 and following, we see that two years later, Amnon is still on the scene, living life normally as one of David's sons, very much part of the royal palace and royal life. And we would have to say that this represents terrible moral weakness on King David's part. We don't know exactly why he did not take decisive action against Amnon, but his failure to do so led to terrible problems in his family, with ultimately the rebellion of another of his sons, Absalom, so that this had consequences for years and years, not only on a family, but on a kingdom and not any old kingdom, the kingdom, the nation that had been chosen by God to be His holy nation in disarray and in strife. People, this is a great reminder to us of the dangers that there are when we don't confront and deal with sin when we fail to do this within our family. Fathers here today, think about that. When we fail to do this 
within our congregations, when we fail to do this in our society? That opting for a quiet life can so often lead to greater trouble in the long run. We must see sin as the Lord sees sin. But finally, and ultimately, this chapter shows us our great, great need of God's grace and rescue, doesn't it? So, think about all that has happened in this chapter. David, when you really think about it, lost two sons in the course of this chapter because Amnon was murdered, but also Absalom the murderer fled. So, that we get to see a truly heartbroken man at the end of this story, at the end of the chapter, in verse 37, we're told that David mourned for his son every day. And then when we go into chapter 14, we're told that the king's heart longed for Absalom. He had lost two sons as a result of all of this. And we talk about dysfunctional families, very often looking at other people, but here is another of the Bible's dysfunctional families. And when you think about it, we all come from a dysfunctional background because sin causes lives to be dysfunctional, not working in the way that God designed them to work. So that in this chapter, we see that while David was this man who had a heart for God, he was a sinful man. He was certainly part of a sinful family, and sin had a major impact on their lives. So, that God's chosen king at this time was himself in need of God's grace and rescue. So, how amazing that God would use this king as part of his great plan to send a perfect Savior, that from this dysfunctional family would descend a much greater perfect king who would be capable of saving his people. As we, as we finish, think of the circumstances leading up to the birth of Jesus, that message of the angel to Joseph who was Jesus' earthly father in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. And he's addressed Joseph, listen to this bit, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And their son of David simply means descendant of David, coming from the line of David. When we look at chapters like the one that we have read together here in church today, in Scripture, that tell the whole truth, and then when we look around us, when we look at this broken world where there is 
so much that is wrong, so much that is mixed up, so many things that are wrong that we're being told are perfectly right. But ultimately, when we look at ourselves, when we look at the homes that we return to today, our broken lives, our dysfunctional families, we see so clearly why we need to be saved from our sins. And Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Are you counted among that number? Have you trusted in this perfect King and this great Savior, Jesus? As we make our response to God's Word today, we ask that question in our praise of God, who, O Lord, could save themselves. And we know that Jesus alone is worthy of the praise. He is our great Savior.